This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The Blue Cliff Record, Case 40. High official Rikuko, while talking with nonsense, said, Joe Hoshi says, Universe and I have the same root. Everything and I are one. How wonderful this is. Nonsense called Rikuko and pointing at a flower in the garden in front said, People these days see the flower of this bush as in a dream. This koan can be understood a couple different levels. Its most obvious level is one in which Nansen is heard to be reproaching the high official for not looking and seeing and smelling experiencing the flower directly, but for quoting someone. What he's quoting is certainly correct and profound. The universe and I have the same root. Everything and I are one. And he himself says, how wonderful this is. He has some experience of that. Yet we can hear Nansen saying that this is second-hand. That any time we're thinking, let alone quoting, we're not experiencing reality directly. And this is a very common in Zen, this idea of experiencing things directly and presumably non-conceptually. And there's an element of practice that engages us at that level. And I think it's very important to practice at that level where we say we just sip the tea, we just wash the teacup, just sweep the floor, and we extend this with such phrases as chop wood and carry water. 
some of us may have the experience of actually doing those things, chopping wood and carrying water. But they stand in for this kind of picture of a life of simple, direct activity. And it's supposed to be distinguished from the life of a uh, paper-pushing bureaucrat who never, uh, or academic, right? who never is uh, dealing with life at this direct and elemental level. And a lot of training in a monastery or a sashin is simply functioning at that very physical, direct level. So there's a way in which we could say that practice functions at this one level of sort of getting us out of our heads. Not always be preoccupied with our thoughts, but to experience things physically, sensually, directly. All for the good. But it's interesting that Hakuin, when he was organizing the Khan curriculum with these old stories, he designated this koan one of the most difficult. He called it a Nanto koan. And I think that if we take this koan to be saying nothing more than stop and smell the roses, it's very hard to see why he would have designated it one of the most difficult. So I think we have to look for it to be understood at another level as well. It's not that that first level is incorrect, and it's not that that's a, not a big part of our training and discipline, but it's not all there is. See, one thing about that first level is it acts as if there's this clear division between immediate sensory perception and our thinking or our conceptualization and that we can put off thinking and conceptualizing and just experience things directly. To operate that way on familiar territory of smelling a flower or sweeping the floor, that, that makes a certain amount of sense. Stop thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon and pay attention to what's right in front of you right now. But it creates a kind of fallacy of immediacy, as if it's possible to once and for all put off conceptual thinking and simply experience everything directly. 
in the Heart Sutra, we're told there's no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No realm of sight, no realm of consciousness. All these things are empty. That means that there are no atoms of experience. It's not like we take away this top level of conceptualization and then we get down to a true and reliable level of sense impression. The Mahayana picture that we have in the Heart Sutra is that even our sense impressions are intrinsically empty, that they're impermanent and they're dependent on their context. And we don't bring in sense data and then interpret it. Everything comes to us whole, the world comes to us whole. And that world is inevitably one that is interconnected, that the meaning of anything is dependent on the meaning of everything else. There's no one place to start. There's no foundation that you build on. What you have is a net, the net of Indra, in which everything is reflected in everything else and that there's no beginning, no starting place. I opened Sashin this morning, quoting our chant where we speak of waking to a dream within a dream. See, one version of waking, which we might get from the first level of interpreting the koan, is that we wake up from conceptualization, from thinking. We wake up from the, the self. And that we would wake up to reality as it is. We would take off the lenses of self-centeredness, delusion, conceptual thinking, and just see things as they are. But what we chant is waking to a dream within a dream. What do we dream? The dream of self, the dream of delusion, is a dream of things, a dream of permanence, of separation, a dream of foundations. But we're told that this dream is intrinsically empty that there are no separate things, no separate selves, but that it's all one, it's all connected. And that connection means that 
you can't be yourself by yourself, that who you are is relational and interconnected and interdependent. And as soon as you try to define yourself, you describe yourself in terms of relationships. A son, a father, a teacher, a student. Who we are is always who and what we are in relation to something else. And the lesson of the Heart Sutra is that that goes all the way down. So what do we wake up to? We wake up to another dream. Because a dream is something that's ephemeral, impermanent. Well, that turns out to be a description of reality. Our reality, our waking reality, is a world in which everything is impermanent. Everything is interconnected. It has no separate, solid essence. So to awaken is to awaken to the reality of impermanence and interconnection. It's to awaken to the dreamlike nature of our awakened life. And when we see it that way, then we hear nonsense comment in a different light. People see these, this flower as if in a dream. Exactly. Exactly. When we practice, you could say that first we practice to get out of our heads, to stop taking our thoughts so seriously and pay attention to what's right in front of us, to live a life that's embodied, not just cerebral, a life that pays attention to the things right in front of us. A life where we get up, make the coffee, make the bed, get dressed. A lot of people tell me that uh, mornings are the most difficult time of day. They can wake up feeling discombobulated or depressed or preoccupied. And that the only thing to do then is to get up. Don't stay in bed. Get up. Take a shower, brush your teeth, get dressed, make the bed, make your breakfast. Start moving, start doing things, start getting engaged in the immediacy of your life. Get out of your head and all the thoughts or feelings that were bogging you down when you wake up. That's the first order of practice. Right? Get out of your head. But then we say that the second side of practice is to go deeper into your head. It's to really see the nature of those thoughts. And when we label our thoughts or watch them come and go, or just sit and think, 
we're allowing thoughts to be experienced as empty. That the thoughts are just things happening, like sounds in the streets or an itch on my foot. We don't get caught up in the content so much as we just watch the process, we watch the flow. And to see them as empty, is to just see it as the flow of thought, releases us from being dragged down by their content. The first level of practice, we can feel that the effect of practice or even the point of practice is to clear or empty our mind of all this intrusive thought so we can just pay attention to what's in front of us. But at the next level of practice, if we see our thoughts are empty, there's no need at all to clear or empty our mind. If we think that practice allows us to see life directly, that can give us a very positive sense of freshness and immediacy, but it also runs the danger of breeding a certain kind of arrogance or elitism. We see things in a way nobody else does. We see reality directly. Everyone else is deluded. And that really goes for the teacher. The teacher is the one who really sees reality directly, right? So how could you ever challenge anything the teacher says? He's the one who sees life just as it is. You can get painted into a very dangerous corner that way, as a student and especially as a teacher. But to see things as a dream, to see that it's empty all the way down, is to recognize that we're always taking life whole. We're always seeing it as part of a story. We're always seeing things as something. And that that something is always subject to revision. It's always just our way of seeing it now from this perspective. But it gives us a kind of humility and fluidity and lightness to whatever view of things we're taking at the moment. It's said that uh, Socrates went to speak to the Oracle of Delphi and was told that he was the wisest man in all of Athens. And he was very dumbfounded and actually upset by that declaration by the Oracle because he knew how much he didn't know. He, he knew 
that there was all sorts of things he didn't understand. So what could the miracle possibly mean to say that he was the wisest man in Athens? And then it occurred to him, he was the one person in Athens who could admit he didn't know. That his not knowing was the source of his wisdom. He wasn't stuck in a particular point of view, but was able to say, I don't know. The high official quotes a verse that says, I and the universe share the same root. What is that root? I don't know. <laughs> 